to start with a question. This is rhetorical. Don't answer it out loud. Now that we've dismissed the kids, we can talk about this, though. Why do parents discipline their children? Why, why do we ever, as parents or teachers or leaders or just people in the church interacting with kids or other people, why do we ever say no? Don't we want people to be happy? Don't we want them to have joy and find enjoyment in things? Don't we want our kids to explore and to grow? And and I hope as parents we would say, absolutely, we want those things for our children. We want those things for other people's children. So it raises this question. Is discipline and is saying no, are these things fundamentally unloving? Is it out of a lack of love that we say no or discipline our kids? And I heard someone say it, correct answer, no. Of course it's not unloving. You know, when I was a youth pastor, and it's funny because as I was writing this, I actually wrote the word kids, and I changed it to youth because I remember as a youth pastor, that's offensive. You don't call the youth kids. I thought it was okay to call the children kids, evidently not. But when I was a youth pastor, some of the youth were uh, talking about like what they were going to do after youth group, and they were going to go out. I don't remember if they were going to go get coffee or bowling or whatever it was, but they were chatting. And, and people started saying, okay, yeah, that'd be great. I want to do that, but I have to be home by this time. My parents expect me home by this time. And somebody else was like, oh, yeah, I have to be home by this time. That's my curfew. And one of the high school boys, I'll never forget this, one of the high school boys spoke up and said, I wish my parents loved me enough to give me a curfew. And he was not being sarcastic. Now, apart from the sermon, I feel the need to defend his parents. They were lovely people and they loved their kids very much. But the point is, I thought it was very interesting how he interpreted that. Unprompted, nobody said anything. The conversation went on from there. But I thought it was so interesting that even as a 15, 16-year-old boy, he understood that discipline and love go hand in hand. Now, discipline or saying no can be done with a selfish intent. It can absolutely be overbearing. So I don't want to give the indication that I'm saying just be hard on your kids. That means you love them more. Not There is a limit, okay? There are extremes. But the opposite extreme is also true, allowing kids to persist in things we know are wrong are harmful to others or hurtful to the child without seeking to steer them in the right direction is unloving. So there is a love to discipline and limits. We see this in scripture where love and discipline are so intertwined in how God deals with his people. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 say, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves As a father, the son, he delights in. In God's character, there is no separation between his love of us and his discipline for us and in us. These two things are related. Now, why are we talking about this? We're going through this sermon series called Focal Point. We're looking at an overview of all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, We are just about through the Old Testament. We're walking up to the birth of Jesus on Christmas morning. Uh, And so we're at this difficult kind of ending of the Old Testament. We've looked at how God 
created us to be in relationship with him, how we sinned and fell away and rebelled against him. We looked at how God called us back into relationship by calling Abraham and his offspring, the people of Israel, and to be his people and live in relationship with him. We looked at how those people went into slavery in Egypt and how God miraculously saved them out of Egypt. And he forms this covenant, this relationship with them. And he gives them his presence. They set up the tabernacle and later on the temple where God will dwell among them. And they were to be different because God was with them. Emmanuel, God with us. We looked at how eventually they wanted a king and they got King Saul and he wasn't a great king. We looked at King David and he was much more righteous, though not perfect. And now all of this points us ahead to the need for a better and greater king that they find in Jesus Christ. We looked last week at how God warned them over and over again that they would go into exile and how they didn't listen. And eventually he sends them into exile. And that's where we're going to pick up on this today. What was the exile How did God use the prophets around this time? And how does this still apply to us today? So we're looking at this idea of God having a purpose for us that is to refine us, to change us. God loves people just the way they are. Loves people just the way they are and loves us too much to leave us that way. God refines those he loves. He disciplines and changes those he loves. So I want to start by looking at the message of the prophets. This is so hard because the prophets span hundreds of years, many different settings, many different messages that they give. We don't have time to look through every single book. But I want to give a basic overview. And let me ask you this question. Do you enjoy being told that you're wrong? Don't answer out loud. (laughs) Who enjoys being told that they're wrong? I don't think most of us like. Now, hopefully deep down there's a part of us, a little more wise, maybe a little more spiritual and humble, that says, yes, if I'm really wrong, I want to learn and grow and I want to get better at it. And so I love when people, friends, family, appreciate it when they tell me. But in the moment when somebody says you're wrong, that's probably not the first thing you're going to think of or feel. There's kind of this rebellious spirit that says, I don't want to be told that I'm wrong. I've told you numerous times that uh, I was a lifeguard in college for one summer at a camp. And, you know, it's interesting as a lifeguard, we have rules at the beach, right? We would go through an orientation. Here's the rule of the beach. You can only go into the deep end if you pass the swimming test. No throwing rocks. There were rules about the boats that they could take out. There were all these rules. Why? Were we mean, horrible, awful lifeguards that wanted those kids to have no fun at all? We wanted them to be miserable at the beach. That's why we had rules. No, of course not. We wanted them to have fun. We wanted them to have a great time. And so we put rules in place to make sure that they could have a good time because these things we were saying no to, we knew were harmful or damaging to them and the time that they wanted to have. Think of a ski resort. Anybody out there go snow skiing? I used to snow ski. I'm getting too old for it. A couple of you, well, we'll just skip over that. The wrong crowd then. (laughs) Think of a ski resort though, right? If you've ever been to a ski hill, if you haven't, just imagine. You get to the top and there's like signs. Here's this route and it's a blue whatever. What are they? I don't remember what they are. Blue square. 
black diamond, double, triple black diamond, right? You're going to die if you go down this hill, but go for it. They have all these routes. And then sometimes you would get to a place and a route would have a sign or a big streamer across it. And it would say closed. Does the ski resort want to keep you from having fun? They want to say, don't go down there because we know you'll have a great time and we absolutely forbid it. No, they know that there's something on that route that is hurtful and harmful and dangerous. And so they want you to go on these other things that are going to be fun and safe so that you don't get hurt. Why am I saying these things? So often we look, people look at God and say, he's so mean. He's so controlling, so overbearing because he has these do this and don't do that in scripture. Why is it that God wants us to not have any joy and any fun in this world when the opposite is the truth? God wants us to have absolute joy. He made us to experience absolute joy in his presence in relationship with him. And he knows that when we turn away from him, we are settling for something less than the best. And some of those things are hurtful and harmful. And he loves us too much to let us go that way without saying anything. And this was a fundamental role of the prophet's in Israel, to come and deliver God's message, usually, often, of rebuke to God's people. We have to understand who God's people were. So I want to go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can follow along in your Bible. I'll put it up here on the screen for us. God calls his people into this relationship. And listen to how he describes them. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God comes to his people, the Israelites, and he says, you are who you are because I love you, because I chose you, and because I saved you. Israel didn't get together and say, you know what, let's make ourselves really awesome. We're going to be the best people in the whole wide world, and then God will notice, and he will pick us because we are the best. God comes to them and says, it didn't happen that way at all. I chose you. And I loved you and I saved you. God doesn't choose us because we're good enough. He chooses us because he is good enough and he loves us. But then he calls us to be different. If we fast forward to Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 13, he says this. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Look back at this for a second. 
Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. Really? That'd have to be sad. Are you kidding me? A parent burning their child alive for whatever purpose? It absolutely had to be said because it was a common practice of the nations around Israel. And as history went forward among God's people, it became a common practice even among God's people. We need to be rebuked sometimes. Because their actions in this matter did not just happen all of a sudden. It was a long, slow slide. And so we need loving rebukes along the way to draw us back back to the Lord. But don't miss the order here. God loved them, chose them, saved them, and then he calls them to be different. We get into great error when we mess up that order and we say, you need to be different so that God can love you and choose you. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ that scripture proclaims. God calls us, loves us, and he is the one that changes us. So what does this have to do with the prophets? Well, what is a prophet? I think most of us would answer that question with a prophet is someone who tells the future. Certainly a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament is someone saying something that's going to happen in the future, but that isn't actually the primary job of the prophets. They are not future tellers. They are forth tellers. The primary purpose of a prophet, that's a lot of Ps. The primary purpose of a prophet is to deliver God's message to God's people. Now, sometimes in the modern era, people say, well, that's like you, Pastor Dave. I mean, you're like a prophet. This is different. See, God would speak directly to the prophet and give them the very words they were to say. Sometimes we tell our kids, hey, can you go upstairs and get, you know, Gibson, who's in his room? Can you go and get him? And then, like, Ainsley will come back down. She's our youngest. She'll come back down. I told him. 10, 15 minutes later, Gibson comes down. Hey, bud, why didn't you come? I, I didn't know I had to. I just thought Ainsley was saying she wanted me to come down. And we look at Ainsley. We say, Ainsley, did you tell them that mom and dad said to say this? No. There's the problem right there. You see, a prophet heard the message of the Lord and delivered it to the people. God doesn't speak to me the words of the sermons that I give to you. I have the word of God here, just like you do. And I'm helping you, I hope, to understand it and to apply it to your life. I am not a prophet. I am a preacher, and that's very, very different. Now, Why did God use prophets or how did he use them to deliver his message? The primary purpose of any prophecy was not just to tell about the future. It was to call God's people back to God's loving purposes. Even instances in the Old Testament or in the New, in Revelation, for instance, when there is stuff about the future, it is always primarily about the here and now And calling God's people to trust in him now because he's the one who holds the future. 
Sometimes the message of the prophecy was comfort when people were going through different uh, difficult times. Sometimes the message of the prophets was a rebuke. Sometimes it was a message of judgment. Sometimes it was a message telling people what God was going to do or what they should do. So I want you to remember that prophets are people that God used to deliver his words, his message to his people. Um, And we need to understand the context in which they served. And that's difficult because we've looked at the time of the kings. Chaos was ruling, kings in the north, kings in the south. Prophets were working and serving God in that time. We look at the time of the exile. We'll look at that in a second. Prophets were serving in that time. Israel gets back from exile. Prophets are serving in that time. Did you know all the way back to the Exodus, there were prophets? Moses is often considered the first prophet. God spoke to him and he delivered the message. So there's a diverse set of circumstances in which prophets served But these prophets are instruments of God's love. We have whole books in scripture that are written by prophets. We have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All of these are books of prophecies, messages from the Lord to his people that were written down. Some of these wrote before the exile, during, after. And a great example of this is, is Ezekiel. Like I said, we don't have time to look at all the messages of all the prophets, but I want to give you just a glimpse. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 4 through 6, Ezekiel chapter 16 is a powerful, powerful chapter. I encourage you to read it, but we'll look at a part of it today. God describes his relationship with his people Israel like someone who came across a newborn baby in a field that had been discarded. That's very graphic. And yet he describes how he took that child, a daughter in this case, and loved her. He says this starting in verse 4. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. What a vivid picture of God seeing his people lost, helpless, hopeless, caught in their own sin, discarded by the world. And he loves them and calls them to life. This is who the Israelites were. This is who we are in Jesus Christ. Those who were helpless and lost and called into a relationship. The passage goes on to show that God nurtures this, this young girl to grow up. And then he commits himself to her in marriage. This thrown out orphan becomes the bride of the great God Almighty. And he loves her. Gives her jewelry and clothing that is rich and radiant with splendor. She is beautiful because of God's love for her. And then we come to verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. 
The history of God's people in the Old Testament is of God's love and provision for them and them so quickly forgetting what he had done. And not just forgetting and kind of sort of backsliding, but running after other gods and goddesses, running full steam into idolatry. Here, the bride of God takes all the gifts that God has given her and uses them to go after other lovers. And then there's the stark rebuke from God in verses 20 and 22. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. This is vivid imagery. Imagine a prophet standing on a street corner proclaiming these words. He would not have been a popular person. These are people who were doing what they wanted, expressing their freedom, trying to find happiness and joy in ways that they thought made sense and would bring fulfillment to them. And God gives this message to Ezekiel to go to them and say, I love you. You are wrong. And I love you too much to just allow you to keep going in this direction. This is a hard but loving rebuke because God loves his children too much to just let us go. And God used the prophets over and over again to remind his people of his love and his commitment to them, his past acts of redemption for them, his present uh, uh, supplying of them and nurturing of them and calling them back. Sometimes God would use a prophet to tell people judgment was coming. Joel chapter 2, 12 to 13, even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. He would tell them, I want you back. He wasn't mad at them and kicking them out of the kingdom. He didn't hate them. He loved them and he's calling them back because he knows the path they're on is a path of destruction. But over and over again, they refused to listen. And at some point, God's loving rebuke turns into God's gracious discipline. And this is where we come to the exile in the Old Testament. Just to catch you up in the history, if you remember, the kingdom of Israel went through a civil war. It was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms, and each had their own issues and problems. After a period of time, the north was captured by the Assyrian Empire. It was raided, and the people were ripped out of their homes and spread across the Assyrian Empire. A while later, the southern kingdom was captured by the Babylonians. It is hard for us as modern people who watch war as updates on TV and news snippets to understand how difficult this was. 
Often this would start with brutal battles or an army laying siege to a city to the point that the inhabitants inside were starving. When that army would enter the city, they would brutally walk through the city, killing many of the leaders, capturing others, and kidnapping people to take them into exile. The exiles would be spread throughout the foreign kingdom so that they couldn't join together and rebel. They were forced to try to take on the culture of this new occupying uh, culture that had come in to try to make them less like what they were and more like the new culture. They lived among the people that had conquered them. And ultimately, they lived among the very same people that God had warned them earlier, don't be like them. And now here they are completely saturated in this culture. This goes on for about 275 years for the northern kingdom. The people live in exile. For about 140 years for the southern kingdom, they live in exile. These are not short periods of time. Oh, sure, as we look at the span of history, we might see that as a a brief blip, but imagine living through it. These are lifetimes, generations of people going by. It was a time of great hardship and sorrow for God's people. We have kind of a journal entry by one person of what they experienced in Psalm 137, 1 through 6. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. Or if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Do you hear the pain That's a profound imagery of of we laid our harps down. We can't even sing songs of worship. They were so heartbroken and sad. During the period of this exile, God raised up numerous prophets to speak to his people. But I want to look at one message from the prophet Jeremiah. This is one of the most famous prophecies in all of scripture. I also think it's one of the most important. It's also one of the most abused. Jeremiah 29, 11, put on Christian greeting cards everywhere. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Praise God. Amen. What a message of hope. And it is. But we have to understand the context. This was written to people in exile who had lost their homes and their homeland, who were living in these horrible pagan cultures, struggling in their identity as the Lord's people and wondering what in the world God was going to do about it. And God comes to them in their hardship and says, oh, I know the plans I have for you. And they're good plans. But in the rest of this passage through the prophet of Jeremiah, God makes it clear to his people, it will be at least 70 years before you go back home. Put that on a greeting card. 
man, I'm really sorry about this bad time you're going through, but it's going to last another 70 years. Good luck. That's not going to sell, is it? It's still a message of hope, though. Because what God is telling them in that context is, yes, you're going to have to wait longer. But the reason you have to wait is because I am working out my plan. And it is ultimately a plan for your good. Plans to give you hope and a future. But that plan is going to take you through a bit more hardship for a while. Because they had chased after so many things other than God. And God was refining and purifying his people. Another powerful message from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31. Jeremiah declares, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And if we skip down to verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins. No more. Remember, we've talked about a covenant as a promise from God to his people, a promise that depends on the Lord's character and his nature. When God makes a promise, it is unbreakable. And so God says to his people in exile, struggling, I will make a new covenant with you to change your heart from the inside out. And then one day, Jesus Christ shared a meal with his disciples. These people who had been in exile returned to their homeland and yet still conquered again. He sits down with his apostles. And in Luke 22, 19 through 20, we read this. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. Whenever a covenant was put in place, there was a sacrifice. Jesus Christ says, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. God disciplines those he loves, but he has also done everything necessary and possible for us to be saved. Jesus Christ went to the cross as the fulfillment of the message that Jeremiah gave to those hurt, lost, lonely, helpless people, people just like you and me. People looking at the world around them going, God, what in the world are you doing? People looking at their culture and struggling. And we have Emmanuel, God with us, who died on the cross to save us from our sins. The prophets in the time of the exile focus us, point us ahead to Jesus Christ. Our God is a good father. And as a good father, he disciplines those he loves. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. There are times of discipline that you might go through, times of hardship, And it might be because of choices you made. 
It might be because of sinful issues in your own life. There are also times of hardship. I want to be very clear that you're not to blame at all. But the foundational principle still applies. God has a purpose for you. And he's going to use this for your good and his glory. And he is seeking to turn your heart back to him. There are times that we grab onto things thinking they will make us happy, joyful, satisfied, purposeful, meaningful, and God has to come along and open our hands. I want to close by painting a picture for you. I've shared this before, and I just think it's a great picture of how God loves us in this way. Imagine a woman waking up in the morning one day to find that she is falling through the air. The wind is rushing past her. She turns and she sees the ground far, far below, and she is plummeting quickly toward it. She's terrified, and she knows she's in trouble. Minutes go by, hours go by, days go by, weeks go by. She still looks, she's still falling, she's still terrified. The ground is still there, rushing up to meet her. She looks around her and she notices there's stuff falling in the air around her. Broken, shattered pieces of a broken, shattered world. She starts grabbing these pieces and she puts them together and she makes a little raft. Protects her from the wind rushing by. She doesn't have to feel it so much. She says, this is good. She begins grabbing more pieces and she makes a house for herself. She makes a door that she can close, windows that she can shut. So she no longer has to look out and see the ground. She no longer has to hear the wind flying past her ears. This is great. She's comfortable, secure. Over time, she finds other people that have made other houses and they're able to join their houses together and they have this great big city and it's wonderful and they're comfortable and they're secure. And one day there's a knock. God shows up at her doorstep and says to her, you're in grave danger. You're falling. You're about to hit the ground. You're in grave danger. And she says, look around. I'm fine. Look at my house and my doors and my windows. Look at these other people. We are secure and we are fine. Who are you to come and tell us that we are in great danger? And so God leaves. The next day, he takes one piece of her house and peels it away. And she looks through the hole and she sees the Lord and she says, what are you doing to my house? And he says, I love you. The following day, he grabs another piece and he tears it away. He does this day after day after day until again, she is plummeting through the air, whistling past her ears and seeing the ground rushing up to meet her. In that moment, she can do one of two things. She can look at the Lord and say, this is your fault. I was just fine. Or she can say, I get it now. I'm in great trouble and I need you to save me. The Lord loves us. And there are times in his love, he has to open up our hands of those things we are holding on to so that we may be aware of the need that was always there, the need for him to save us. Will we listen? Will we trust him, take his offer of salvation, 
Or will we just keep on grabbing the stuff of life and building new windows and new doors to make ourselves feel better? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, as hard as it is to read the prophets, and and it is at times, it seems so depressing to hear one after another after another message challenging your people, listing their sin, calling them to repentance. And then, God, I think of my own stubborn, willful heart and how often I need to be challenged and how often I turn away from your rebukes. And God, I pray if there's anyone here that knows you're knocking on their door, I pray that you would turn their heart toward you, help them to see the love in your rebuke. I pray that in your grace and mercy, if you see fit to open our hands, to let go of those things we are trusting in, I pray at the same time you would give us your message of grace through Jesus Christ that we would turn and see the hope that we have in you. May we learn the lessons from the people of the Old Testament. May we see these signs pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. For he is our salvation. He is our security. He is our new home, our new city, our new garden, our new heavens and new earth where you will dwell with us forever and ever. And so as we're about to sing, Father, may we be people who surrender to that truth, even when it's hard and it hurts. In your name we pray. Amen.